Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. I guess I'll start with good morning to everyone again. And um, my talk today is going to be on Tori Engie's uh, chant, uh, the Bodhisattva vow. <clears throat> And it's, it's, a, it's something that we chant frequently here, once, uh, once a month anyway, on uh, one Wednesday evening a month. And then also on different occasions, sometimes in intensives and sometimes um, at uh, celebrations of life or memorials, we'll chant it. And in other temples, they, they uh, often, often chant it. So I'd like to start with, with what I like to do a lot of times with these kinds of chants is look at the the author, look at their life. Where, where do they come from? What are they thinking about? So I, that's what I would like to do is kind of explore explore the author a little bit, and then we'll take a look at the um, the work itself. So um, the background. So Tori Ng, uh, he was born on May eighth, seventeen twenty one, and died April tenth, seventeen ninety two. So he was an eminent Japanese Zen monk. He was an author. And as typical of that, a lot of these guys, they're really talented. He was a painter and calligrapher as well. He was also the uh, chief disciple and Dharma heir um, of the Japanese, the famous Japanese Rinzai master, um, Hakin Ekaku, who he was alive from 1685 to 1769. And he was uh, most famous probably for reviving the Rinzai school in the 18th century Japan. Um, <clears throat> so Tori Enji is known as the author of an influential text um, on Zen practice called The uh, Inexhaustible Lamp of Zen, the Shuman Lu Jinto Ron, which is a, was his masterwork and it presents the comprehensive system of Rinzai Zen, all the ins and outs of it, as it existed at the time of Hakim. So Tori was born in Kazaki, Kazaki um, in Shinga Prefecture. Uh, he was five years old when he met the respected Zen master Kogetsu uh, Sensei. Um, and it, this inspired him so much that by the age of nine, he went <laughs> to, uh, to study at the local monastery. By the age of 17, he went to Daikoji and Kyoshu, where he was ordained as a Buddhist monk um, by this same, same fellow, the Kogetsu Zenzai. And under his direction, Tori achieved his first Kenjo experience. Now, Kenjo experience, in case you're not familiar with that, is um, uh, an enlightenment experience. And it was interesting um, in doing my research uh, on the, these Rinzai guys, they talk more so about the Kenzo enlightenment experiences that we ever seem to talk about in, um, 
in Soto Zen. We don't have, we don't emphasize that. So this was kind of interesting. It talks about different levels of Tenzin, blah blah blah. So so anyway, just kind of an interesting perspective that they have. So after this experience, um, Torre sets out on a pilgrimage and he goes to various Japanese monasteries. <clears throat> and then in 1743, his prior teacher Kogetsu suggests that he should visit this uh, temple showing G where um, Tori Enji meets the great Rinzai master, uh, Haki Nekaku, and he studies with it. So um, I want to interrupt and talk a little bit about Hakin so people know who that is, who he's studying under. So Hakin um, was born in 1686 and he died in 1769, but he was one of the most influential figures in Japanese Zen Buddhism. Um, he's, re he's regarded as the, he's the first person that started to revive the Rinzai tradition, the school, as it had become completely stagnant. It was on its deathbed. And so he brought it back to life and re refocused things um, onto uh, these traditionally rigorous training methods, including uh, meditation and koan practice. So Hakim is also kind of famous with this tale um, that we, a lot of us have heard about it. So I think it's uh, one of those koans, but I don't know if it's koans, it's just a story. Anyway, it's called, Is That So? And, um, the story is that Hakin was a priest in this town and um, or a monk, I should say, and he um, this beautiful young woman had become pregnant and uh, their parents were after who's the father, who's the father, who's the father, and she refused to answer. And finally, she coughs out, oh, it was Hakin, the, the monk. And so the parents take the, take the girl, they go to the to the monastery and, and um, you know, they're yelling at him and they're furious with him and say, okay, you're the father, you need to take care of the child. So when the child was born, they brought the child and said, it's yours. And Hakim, when he heard all this said, is that so? And so when the child brought the child, he accepted the child and took care of it. Um, for about a year, uh, a year later, the young girl couldn't take it anymore because she lied. <laughs> and she confesses to her parents that it was actually this young man that worked in the fish market. And so the parents are going, oh my goodness, we've ruined the reputation of this, of this monk. Oh well, <laughs> um, you know, he'd taken really good care of her. You know, he did his alms, you know, going out and begging. And then neighbors would give him milk. And so, you know, he was take, took care of her, all right, but you know, it was tough. So the family goes back to the monk and says, We're, you know, please forgive us. We made this mistake and give us a child. Yunk. And so they took the child back and he'd been taking care of her for a year. Uh, anyway, it's the same. This again, he says, Is that so? That was his only response. So pretty stoic, pretty stoic kind of guy. <clears throat> so um, anyway, so that. Uh, he, and he also says, is that so? It's good to hear this, that this baby has is her, her father. So he just smiles. So that's Hakim. So that was the teacher of, of uh, Tori Enji. So getting back to Tori. So he studies with Hakim 
until the time he receives a message from his um, from his mother who's become gravely ill and so he leaves the monastery Tori leaves the monastery and um, takes care of his mother for about two years when she passes away and then after that he goes to a small hermitage in Kyoto and then he starts this very rigorous ascetic training and he has this other really deep experience of realization and um, he because he had been practicing in cold conditions he develops tuberculosis i don't know what the, what's the connection between cold and tuberculosis it confused me but at any rate that's what my source said anyway he was very ill himself and so he thought he might not survive and so he decided well i'm going to write this um this book on the Rinzai school and on the tradition so that we, i can leave that. that that will be my what i contribute and so um, he worked on it for a couple of two or three years and it's a 500 page book it was complete um, and by the end of the time he finished it he was actually his health had improved considerably so he was 30 by then he sent a copy to um, a text to Hakeem and um, Hakeem wrote back saying it's an excellent introduction to Zen practice and the work presents the Zen path according to the Rinzai tradition of Hakim's time. It also attempted to bring the unity of all the Buddhist schools together within this tone and also um, attempts to reconcile Zen Buddhism with Confucianism, Shintoism, and Taoism. So, um, so then Tori uh, launches into a career of teaching for about 40 years. He receives Hakim's robe, and then he becomes, you know, he's become the, uh, officially the Dharma heir. And he worked along Hakim to develop a curriculum, koan study curriculum, uh, which remains in use today. After Hakim's death, Tori returns to uh, Ryotaku-ji and uh, a monastery, and then remained there for 20 years overseeing its reconstruction, a restoration, and then at the end of his life, he returns to his homeland and where he died in 1792. So that's Tori's life. Um, I wanted to, to, to look too at this major work that he did, um, the inexhaustible lamp of Zen. Um, the interesting thing about uh, that particular, but I'll get to that. Um, so he writes this, this book and it's uh, in the preface, it talks about how each school has its particular characteristics and, um, and it stresses particular points. And so for the Zen school, this is Rinzai Zen school, the Zen school, uh, practitioners of the way, um, everybody, monks and laymen alike need to know what these are. And so according to the lack of Tara Sutra, take what one should do is take the heart of the Buddha's um, teachings as the principle and the gateless gate as the Dharma gate. So that's the basis of it. And they don't, um, uh, they depend not just on one doctrine, but on one um, scripture, but a series of things for everything from the uh, Tripitaka. 
So there is a, a, a little poem that uh, was attributed to Bodhidharma about this school. And it says, but our school is based on a special transmission outside the teachings, not depending on the written word, directly pointing to the human heart, seeing into its nature and becoming Buddha. It goes on to say, this is, comes from the book, our school does not depend on any scripture. There's only the transmission of the heart seal from one to another, from the Buddha to, the, to a Buddha, to a patriarch, to a patriarch, like pouring water from one vessel into another. The transmission from heart to heart. For this reason, it'd be better to call our school the Buddha Heart School rather than the Zen School. So I thought this was really interesting to have this in there. This is what Tori was writing about. This is the way he looked at his teaching. Um, the Buddha heart is of the essence here. So um, <clears throat> further, it's been said that uh, if you understand the heart of the teachings, the inexhaustible lamp Buddha, the words at this moment here and now are no other than the heart. And the heart is no other than Buddha. In other words, the heart of the Buddha's teachings is the Buddha heart. So again, this emphasis on the heart. Okay, so um, at the same time that there's this, the heart is the most important and that there are many scriptures that they use, um, they also say that from a broader point of view, you can use fine words or coarse words to talk about it. Um, so you can use a nursery mind, you can sing it, you can do anything. What's, but of course, it's, uh, you can also talk about it from a scientific or philosophical view. But the importance is, is the heart and also the reason for taking the gateless gate is the Dharma gate. So that's their emphasis, the heart and the gateless gate and the Dharma gate. So the second thing that's really important about this, about knowing about this, this guy, uh, Tory is that he chose the title of that of this book, um, the Inexhaustible Lamp, because it comes from Vimalakirti, the Vimalakirti Sutra, and this is in the chapter of the Bodhisattva chapter, and there Vimalakirti is telling everyone the Buddha. Whoops, the Buddha. He's telling all these creatures that have come from all around, and all the different monks, and all the different. Um, supernatural people, the monks and the nuns and everybody, you know, there are thousands in his room and he's saying this, that um, the, inex that the uh, inexhaustible light can be likened to a single lamp kindling thousands of lamps. All dark regions, are, all dark regions are illuminated and yet the light is not exhausted. In the same way, a single bodhisattva leads hundreds of thousands of sentient beings to liberation inciting them to arouse the heart's aspiration towards incomparable supreme enlightenment. And this activity, activity of his is also inexhaustible. So it signifies again, the lamp of the Muda heart, kindling thousands of lamps, the lamps kindling one another and hearts transmitting the heart seal from one to another without limit, illuminating the boundless Dharmakaya or the qualities of the Buddha of wisdom, compassion, patience, and fortitude. So 
And just in this, Master Tor set a standard for trainees of later generations. And he, and since his title fully expresses the essence, his preface must be carefully read, according to what he writes in the preface. So, um, to move on, I want to talk about the Bodhisattva vow. And as you guys know, in our old chant book, we have two Bodhisattva vows. And one is the one we chant Monday through Friday, every morning. Um, uh, beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to embody it. So this is not the one that Tori wrote, but this is our vow, right? As, as um, some of the members here, it's, and it's, the vow is considered um, not specific rules to follow and to check off because they're impossible to obtain, right? To, to free all beings is quite, quite a task. We probably won't do that in a lifetime, but, but it's more a guide. It's, it's a, um, an orientation, right? That's what that vow is for. And it's just like celestial bodies assist a mariner in, in navigation. Oh, we go this way. Um, this vow serves as a guide to set that trajectory for us towards saving and liberating all sentient beings, including ourselves. So we know what we're aiming at and we, we aim towards and we do the best we can. Um, and also with this vow, we're choosing by having a vow such as this, we, we choose the vow as opposed to just allowing our karma to drag us around hither and thither, following that around. On the other hand, the introduction, the uh, Bodhisattva vow, which Tori Enji wrote, is, is something altogether different. Um, as I said, we read this frequently. Um, the, there are many translations of this um, chant. And I chose one that was translated by Robert uh, Aiken, who's from the Honolulu Diamonds uh, Sangha. So um, what I would like to do with this, <clears throat> as always, I'd like to just um, have us read this and, um, and just try to experience the, the um, the words, you know, just just listen to it. Let it wash over you, and don't try to capture meaning. You know, trying to figure out what it means as it goes along. Just what we want is what's your experience of it. Um, so that's the focus. Do you have? Do you notice? Hmm, I'm having this um, tension in my chest, or I'm feeling more expansive, or um, I have this this certain thought come up about this, oh, this is unpleasant, or this is pleasant, you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to, oh, this means that, this is what he's talking about, because we'll talk about that later. So, um, what I thought I would do is, I'll, I'll read it once, and then ask somebody else to volunteer to read it. To uh, Lori, would you like me to put this, share the screen with this? Yeah, this is a good time for that. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning it, because I'd have forgot. I'll, I'll wait for you to get it up. Oh, and you guys will probably like it too. 
simple disciple, but I offer these respectful words. When I regard the true nature of the many dharmas, I find them all to be sacred forms of the Tathagata's never-failing essence. Each particle of matter, each moment, is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance. With this realization, our vir virtuous ancestors with compassionate minds and hearts, gave tender care to beasts and birds. Among us in our daily lives, who is not reverently grateful for the protections of life, food, drink, and clothing? Though they are inanimate things, they are nevertheless the warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnations of Buddha. All the more we can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. That very abuse conveys the Buddha's boundless loving kindness. It is a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions we have built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginningless past. With our open response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves and the most profound and pure faith arises. At the peak of each thought, a lotus flower opens and on each flower there is revealed a Buddha. Everywhere in the pure land, in its beauty. We see fully the Tathagata's radiant light right where we are. May we retain this mind and extend it throughout the world so that we and all beings become mature in Buddha's wisdom. Okay, would somebody else like to read it? Would somebody online like to read it? Bodhisattva vow. I'm only a simple disciple, but I offer these respectful words. When I regard the true nature of the many dharmas, I find them all to be sacred forms of the Tathagata's never-failing essence. Each particle of matter, each moment is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance. With this realization, our virtuous ancestors with compassionate minds and hearts gave tender care to beasts and birds. 
Among us, in our own daily lives, who is not reverently grateful for the protections of life, food, drink, and clothing? Though they are inanimate things, they are nonetheless the warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnations of Buddha. All the more we can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. That very abuse conveys, abuse conveys the Buddha's boundless loving kindness. It is a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions we have built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginningless past. With our open response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves, and the most profound and pure faith arises. At the peak of each thought, a lotus flower opens, and on each flower there is revealed a Buddha. Everywhere is the pure land in its beauty. We see fully the Tathagata's radiant light right where we are. May we retain this mind and extend it throughout the world so that we and all beings become mature in Buddha's wisdom. Okay. Thank you. So, I guess my question is, of any and all of you, is, um, did anything come up when you read that? Any sensations, any images, any thoughts, feelings that might accompany the sensations? Yeah. For the, the last two sitting periods, I've been looking at the words Dharma talk and thinking about how Dharma talk is not Dharma. And your talk was perfect in the sense of talking about what Dharma is as opposed to what Dharma talk is. Um, and then I thought about the, the koan that I've been working on about Buddha holding up the flower and how uh, that was such a perfect Dharma talk. And then there's this line here that's so perfect. Um, on each flower there is revealed the Buddha. And I actually was thinking about he was holding up Buddha when he held up the flower. So, I mean, that was so great. And then you're, you're telling the Hakim story. Yeah. And this line here persecutes us with abusive language was exactly what Hakim did in terms of turning toward it and seeing that as a dharma gate uh -huh. and, and that's so beautiful that you know that connection yeah that's why i wanted to include i, I just love that um so this is perfect thank you thank you anyone else yeah i what came up for me i was i guess i was trying to um feel sense into what was being conveyed just underneath the language and i i seem to get um gratitude first and then compassion slash acceptance mm. or openness yeah. yeah so the yeah the first part seems to be uh gratitude for the protections of life as it says yeah just a real a real deep sense of gratitude and then inside of that then when there's others that we can easily imagine to persecute or mock or belittle us 
then there's just this opening, which is compassion and acceptance mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, and it's, as Kim was saying too, that uh, Hakeem is a perfect example of that. I mean, here he is being accused of fathering a child. <laughs> You know, and he's just really calm. Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> and then they take it away from him again. Oh, is that right? So, I don't know. Do you think was that so? Was a question or a statement? Yeah. I think it was more statement, actually. Yeah, I, I yeah. gave it that way. Like, let it be so, it's something like, like that. Rhetorical. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, let it be so. Yeah. Glory, glory. I had. I was going to say something. Hello. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Oh, oh okay. Um, so um, I found it um, very moving. Um, and there was such kindness in the whole approach, and um, I loved the um, um, portraying of um, uh, when when bad actors are in our lives, and that it's a device for us. A compassionate device for us to respond, I guess, kind of like Hakeem did when he was presented with that kind of treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute, more about that. Um, I mean, it's really radical. It's really radical um, for us human beings to do that. Oftentimes we want to, we want to respond in kind. Yeah, and then the reassurance to me, this is what stood out to me, is everywhere is the pure land and its beauty. We see fully the Tathagata's radiant light right where we are. Like, mm -hmm. you don't have to move, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to think anything, it's right where you are. Mm -hmm. That's right. And and I wanted to, um, it, that's written about, in, I'm being obnoxious as far as, far as um, being Malakirti, but his first talk in, in the beginning of, the, of that sutra, is precisely that is he says the pure land is everywhere you can see it and some people are saying well you we can't see it and then zoom you know he does this whatever magic and then they see oh yes it's all the Buddha land and it's there all the time but people don't see it and so Shariputra of course who always kind of plays the, the fall guy or whatever he says well why is it that I don't ever see it I never see the pure land and, and so they're going well it's your mind <laughs> your mind is defiled that's why you right. don't see it so it's the same sort of thing yeah. here. We yeah. have the clarity of mind. I just love that. Okay, so um, any other comments or anything? Okay, we'll go on. So, um, so I kind of like to talk Excuse about- Excuse me, this. sorry, sorry. So yeah. one of the participants asked if there was another way to use the other camera so we could see the other people. We are only seeing you now, Lori. We're not seeing the other folks. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that would be that would be nice. We'll just have our director here. Wonderful. Th thank you, director. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um uh, yeah, so I thought we'd talk about the themes, and we kind of touched on them already. Um, so uh, the first one being 
um, not first and foremost, but just one of them, is there's this discussion, and you're alluding to this too, you're stating this, the sacredness of all dharmas, of all phenomena, even, even abuse, it's all, it's all sacred, it's all the pure land, all of it. So um, that's the first thing. And then everything offers an opportunity to open to the dharma. So life as it is, by relinquishing yourselves, and that's the key, it's, it's, it's being able to surrender to what is, surrender to life as it is, no matter what it is. And, and I say it's not an easy thing to do. But if one does do that, then this profound and pure faith arises. I think that's really interesting. You, there's a choice of words of pure faith arises. It's like you, when you open yourself up, you're basically, you're being totally vulnerable, right? And so to be able to do that, presumably you've got to have, you have a faith, you know, that, that something is going to, that it'll be okay. And, and then in that, here, there, there is the pure land. It's present. And then to extend this mind, when, when, one, when one is able to, um, to open in this way, it has an impact. Everything we do has an impact on everybody else, right? And so that has an impact on anyone that might be watching or the other person. It has an impact. So you're in this way, you're extending it every say, every, everywhere. So all beings can share in the realization of the Dharma just by that one action. You have opened the gate for other people to see and to be a part of. So um, in opposition to that, we have the ordinary response, which is, you know, we might have immediate thoughts of, you know, how am I going to get back at this person or I'm going to hit them back or hit them back with a comment, you know, say something just to make them be quiet or, or show your smarts and saying something back or, you know, anger begs, begs for anger. And so that's what we respond with often. Um, but again, what if we were able to wait? Just a moment, you know, find that gap we're always talking about. Turn toward our pain and anger and just witness it for a moment. And then the sense surrendering is, is a, perhaps a possibility. We can surrender into what we're thinking and feeling without acting. Can we do that? There was an article about this particular um, chant and uh, uh, Susan Murphy Roshi from Zen um, Open Circle was writing about it. And she said, spoke of such occasions and that we're talking about here with anger, you know, being really angry at somebody being abusive and you're being angry back. That um, on such occasions, um, that access to a, it, it, it brings an access to a deep confidence, again, this trust this faith in the nature of reality that opens up when we give us our, when we give ourselves away when we give ourselves away instead of defending ourselves and discover who we are at such a moment isn't that intriguing who are we in that moment to be an act of kindness in this situation approaches satan <laughs> i mean who can do that right but it may be worth approaching just to see how far we can go to meet such a challenge can we do that
And that's anyone's own question, right? And she also says, uh, when you let the fury, the fury, someone else's, or our own fury, move straight through, and we don't, there's no residue to it, just it can result in an overflowing of compassion and love. Just, you know, you don't hold on to it, but it just, and then compassion and love can arise. So, uh, and an instance in when, when one might experience this, and, and maybe you have experienced it, we'll find out. Uh, I'll ask you. Um, and when someone has gotten really angry with you, have you ever just gotten quiet? You just be quiet instead of launching out. Just be quiet. And then you may be concerned about the other person, you know, particularly somebody that you really care about. You know, you're having an argument about something that's a heated argument, and all of a sudden you're quiet and you realize, oh, this person is really hurting over this situation. So it just changes the whole thing. You know, it's, it changes it instead of when we try to lash out. So, um, you know, so then so can we see this? Can we even entertain the idea that these situations, the next time something like nice this occurs, to say, just to take a pause and, and think about that? Is this the Tathagata liberating me from <laughs> offering me the opportunity to liberate myself from, from a blind tendency of just, <laughs> yeah. So then the question is, how can we do this actually in our own practice? And um, so I'm interested if anybody has ever had experiences with this, either, you know, either um, finding a gap or um, being quiet or that kind of thing. Or, you know, have you just um, maybe have that tendency, normal human tendency, just to shut it right back. Ah, Dar is that Darcy? Mm -hmm. Darcy. Hey, everybody. Hey. So, yeah, I was wondering how to weave this in, but I had a recent experience of um, someone um, getting very, very, very unreasonably upset with me. And, um, um, my my response and i'm trying to weave this into me because i tend to not lash out you know that's how i usually do and it hasn't been always working you know but um so this time i really you know sat with it and worked with it and, and wrote this person a a letter that I thought was very appropriate, you know, and, uh, but I did name the fact that the outburst, the, you know, the yelling, the uh, angry words were hurtful. I did say that, you know, but I also explained that it makes me want to pull away when what I really want is, you know, to connect and some other thing. And I guess what I want to say is um, it didn't have the intended result. She got even more irate. And this um, practice 
is an ongoing thing, you know, like, I'm like so frustrated. I think, okay, I did it. I did it. And, you know, and that's, it doesn't mean that's going to take care of the problem. It just means then you have to do it again and again and again. And then you also have to practice it towards yourself because you feel like just, you know, directing some of it inwards and you have to be quiet about that too and yeah. Yeah. and not be reactive you know like you know I should I should be able to fix this or I should be better than that or you know so then that and it's just a um it is a practice it's just an ongoing thing and I think it's different for every person and it's interesting that you brought this up today because I've been, um, I've been look, looking at it and really trying to figure out how to live my vow in a way that works for me, you know. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry for the echo. Sorry for the echo. Is it Darcy? I'm Darcy. I'm here. This is terrible. What can we go? Back? I mean, that's okay. Let me just say my question. This is not going to last long, I think. I wonder if, like, in, in the context you're describing, what the let it be so remark, like how that works or what form it takes, or the, like, so whatever the question was he asked, that so. I translated to myself as let it be so, like, in the face of that. Is that so? Is it so? Is it so? Yeah. Like, I don't know if that's not, not with the intent to be helpful, but just thinking about the whole dynamic. Yeah. I, I think it, it seems like with, with that, it's such a, the comment is so, um, is that so? It's not, you're not defending, you're not attacking, you're just, acknowledging kind of acknowledging what somebody has said like people's actions and words create things oh yeah right and mm -hmm. so it's like all right is that so and so maybe it is more of a question like not it is so but it might be so it might not be so well that's no it's a, it's a demonstration of not taking a position it's uh, okay yeah and and yeah. not not knowing he's not getting snagged either way he he just and he's acknowledging that he's heard them he's that so? that's that's primarily what he's doing okay. i hear you and sometimes darcy you still there sometimes that's all we can do some people are just going to be mad no matter what our reaction is to it you know sometimes it's not you know, and I don't think this is about um, trying to get rid of somebody else's anger or trying to calm that down, but rather um, how do we stay where we are and not push back, you know? Without condition reactions. That's right. Yeah. David, were you going to say something? Well, you yeah, I think I can relate my way into this and perhaps others could too. We've all had the experience where 
we're driving. There's nothing like getting a car right out of the road <laughs> to like reinforce these ego boundaries. So we've all had the experience of someone, well, I have, um, like yelling at us or, or, or flipping us off or, or, or throwing aggression our way in from a vehicle. And there's nothing like that that just lights a fire within me. I get mad and I want to react on my own. But have you ever, like occasionally I've been like in a real serene, relaxed kind of place driving and I'm not aware that somebody thinks I'm going too slow or they they're taking some issue with the way I'm driving and, and they pass me and they're, they're like mouth is moving and their face <laughs> is purple and I have this bemused curiosity with it and I'm just too grounded to take the bait and it 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 transforms the whole situation mm -hmm. and I feel like first I'm like a little surprised then I'm curious and then I'm I feel compassion it's like this person is like having a spasm in their car and <laughs> like, like it it feels like oh poor wow what a what a day you're having like and, and so that that gives that makes me think of this it's like we have to like take a position that we're we are a, a self-contained ego that needs to be defended before any of this else happens if we don't take that position then we, we can just say is that so you know and yeah. so but that's the that's the thing is not taking the position. Um, Hi, I wanted to apologize for being off video. I just can't stop sneezing. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a way uh, to take ethical action when there's abuse without taking emotional action. So my response to anger is usually fear. Um, and and then self uh, diminishment. Um, so, but sometimes, um, sometimes you you can't. Sometimes you are in danger, or somebody's doing something that's just unethical, right. and that nobody should do to anyone. And that's I wonder right. if you can take ethical action without involving the self. Yeah, I think that there are, there are times where you have to, when you are either the victim of or witnessing something, you know, abusive, and you can certainly say, stop, you know, that's totally, to me, is totally the right thing to do. You just, um, so you do, you do intervene because you don't want it to continue. Well, and you have every right to protect your physical self. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's not what we're talking about. The question is like protecting the ego, right? Mm -hmm. That's maybe a distinction to mm -hmm. make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even when somebody is taking aggressive action with the cause of it, with the intention of causing you emotional or psychological harm, I feel that that's an unethical behavior if it's you know going on for 40 years for example um yeah <laughs> no i i don't i think yeah that's a whole different category i would never say that if you're in an abusive relationship that you should let it go on and open yourself up to it yeah this is a little bit 
different from that. This is just a, a something kind of like a one-off even, uh, not something where it's this habitual behavior that's going on and on and on, that's not healthy. So I would not recommend that at all. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because that needs to be really clear. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, there's another aspect to the Hakeem story for me, and that is that he's really dealing with the appropriate action for that moment. That's and right. that is there's this baby that needs to be taken care of. That's right. Yeah. And starting, you know, life starts right now. Yeah. And now I need it to be done. And that's part of the lesson for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the ethical action that I think. And also turning the baby over again, you know, and just saying, so easily. Okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what needs to now, happen now. Now, a year later, this is what needs to be done. You need to take the baby back. Yeah. Without yeah. any attack, any baggage. You yeah. Know, it's clean. Yeah. 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 So does that seem clear, um, Jeanette? Kind of. Well, I think I'll, you know, be looking at it from many angles for a long time to come. But yeah, um, that is helpful. Thank you. Yeah, there's a there's a real distinction, I think, um, in, in that kind of thing. There's an ongoing abusive relationship. You don't just open yourself up to it. That's not the recommendation here at all. Uh, this is like somebody's just angry and responding at you angrily and you just don't take part in it mm -hmm. yeah you just, don't, you just don't go there you're not going to fight it you're not going to fight it out yeah anything else okay Let's do some change. Um, Laurie, hang, hang on one second. So um, the version that you just shared with us is a little different from the one in the chant book, and I really liked it also. Um, so is it's, but it's not on the website, is it? Your That version that you just shared? No, okay. no. It's, um, you can find it online. Okay. Uh, he wrote a book, and that was included in it. And he has okay. quite a lot to say about this particular um, story. Right? Thank so, you. Yeah.